Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Fruit of the tree. Thank you. That is in the midst of the garden, needs shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave me to be with, Me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was a mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword to turn every way to guard the way of the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. morning. Let's pray one more time before we jump in. Father in heaven, we we give you thanks for a beautiful day, for another opportunity to gather together with your people, to sing praises uh, to you, 
to your son, Jesus. Thank you so much, Jesus, for what you did uh, that we're going to be looking at today. Um, thank you for your word. I pray that you would give light and give insight. I pray that you'd be in my mouth and that you'd guide every word that I say. And I, and I ask that you would do work in our lives as a result of this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 3. Uh, if you've been around the church for a while, you might be familiar with this one. If you're um, new to Christianity, new to the church, you're seeking, you're trying to figure some things out, this is an important chapter. In fact, um, I would say that apart from understanding what happens here in, in Genesis chapter 3, you won't really be able to understand our world. Uh, you won't be able to un- understand humanity, and you won't be able to understand the rest of the Bible. So this is very, very foundational. This is the hinge point in Genesis, and we're only three chapters in. Um, Genesis uh, starts out with a very, very good world, right? God made everything, and he saw all that he made, and he said it was very good. And uh, we only made it one more chapter after that, and now all of a sudden things are turning south. Um, When we ask questions, or when we are asked questions, like, why does the world have so much pain and suffering and evil in it? Um, If God is good, why are there wars? Or why does cancer and dementia exist? Or why do innocent babies die? Why do planes crash? Things like this. What? What, where do we look? How do we answer those kinds of questions biblically? Um, and the answer is found right here in this story in Genesis chapter 3. Um, the fall, where, which, which you've heard referred to this morning, is the moment that sin entered into the world through the first man, Adam. Because of Adam's sin, the whole universe is corrupted. This world is not what it was meant to be. And we talked about the last week the fact that this world is still good in many ways, um, that God's creation is still good. There's much to be enjoyed. There's much of God's glory still embedded in this world, um, and yet it is corrupted. It's, it's broken, and we also see that. We see the effects of sin all throughout it. We are not who we were meant to be, Animals are not what they were meant to be. Plants and soil and the air we breathe and celestial bodies and water, nothing is the way that it was meant to be in our universe. Romans eight nineteen through 21 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. It was subjected to Futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Creation is in bondage to corruption. And that is because of what happens right here in Genesis chapter 3. It explains what's wrong with our world, but it also helps us to understand what's wrong with us. I think we can all relate to what Paul wrote in Romans uh, chapter 7 when he said, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. We've all experienced that. We all know what that feels like. And to understand that, we need to go back and see what happened in Genesis chapter 3. It, it helps us to have a correct doctrine of indwelling sin. and it, it protects us from having too high a view of ourselves. Timothy Keller, in uh, his book, Encounters with Jesus, tells the story of Adolf Eichmann, who was uh, one of the Nazi architects of the Holocaust who escaped after World War II to South America where he was caught in 1960, taken back to Israel for a trial. Um, He was tried, found guilty, and executed. But there was a very interesting incident during his trial. They had to find witnesses uh, who actually saw him commit the crimes that he had committed against humanity. They needed to find people who saw him participate in the atrocities that were committed in the Nazi death camps. One of the material witnesses was a man named Yahil Denur. And when he came in to testify, he saw Eichmann in the glass booth and immediately broke down, falling to the ground and sobbing. And there was pandemonium in the room. Uh, The judge was hammering to get order. It was very dramatic. And sometime later, Denur was interviewed by Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes. Wallace showed Denur the tape of him falling down and asked him why it happened. Was he overwhelmed by painful memories or with hatred? Is that why he collapsed? Denur said no. And then he said something that probably shocked Wallace and everyone who heard what he said. He said that he was overcome by the realization that Eichmann was not some demon, but was an ordinary human being. And then he says, I quote, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this exactly like he. We are all capable of great evil. If we don't understand the fall, we will not understand how powerful and insidious sin is. Without understanding the fall, we won't understand our Bibles either. Um, As we've said, these early chapters in Genesis are foundational for the rest of Scriptures. The rest of the story is predicated on what happens here. And so we we need to um, understand this hinge point in the story in in order to understand what God is doing in the rest of the entire Bible. This is what He's fixing. This is what He's undoing. This is why Jesus came. This is why he had to die. You have to understand Genesis 3 in order to understand the whole Bible. Last week I gave you a definition of sin uh, from the New City Catechism. And it, it, it says that sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created. It's rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. It's a good definition. Um, The scriptures say that sin is lawlessness. It's breaking God's law. 
And so I want to briefly consider where sin came from. Where did it all start? That's where I want to begin um, with my outline here. Where did sin come from? Uh, So before the disobedience of Adam and Eve, Satan had already fallen. This is clear from the fact that he, through the serpent, deceives Eve in the garden. Um, Revelation 12.9 says this, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Satan and his angels clearly sinned against God at some point before Genesis 3 and experienced the consequences of their rebellion. 2 Peter 2.4 tells us this, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. That's the time that they're in right now. They are in some way being uh, committed to chains of gloomy darkness until their judgment. And so into this paradise garden slithers a snake that um, that is controlled by Satan. Um. Somehow Satan had rebelled and then convinced other angels to join him in that rebellion. And those, those fallen angels are what the Bible refers to as demons. And um, so um, the word Satan, when we, when we read that, it actually means adversary. Um, and and that, is, that describes his posture, Satan's posture toward God and everything that God is for. He is an adversary. He's against all that is good and true and beautiful. He wants to rob God of glory in any way he can. He wants to do that by leading people into disobedience to their creator, to God. And that's what he does in this chapter. So sin originated with Satan, who was at one time... um, a beautiful angel, and um, rebelled against God. So then, secondly, I want to look at what happens, all right? This is um, getting into the story. What happens here? First of all, I want to say that this was a true historical event. We must insist upon the historical truthfulness of this narrative um, if we are to believe the inerrancy of the Scriptures, and we do. This is not just a story Um, This is historical narrative like the rest of Genesis. So New Testament authors are going to look back on this account and refer to Adam as a real historical person and the fall as a real historical event that has sweeping implications on the cosmos. Jesus refers to Satan as the father of lies. He's a real being. In other words, the lying originated with, with Satan. Um, and John says in 1 John that the devil has sinned since the beginning. Paul refers uh, to this moment when Adam sins as the moment that sin and death entered into the world. 
And he speaks of the serpent deceiving Eve as a real historical event. So, so don't be tempted to toss this account into uh, some category of parable or, or just a story. This was a real historical event. Now, how did he do it? How did Satan deceive Eve? The, ser- the serpent slips into the garden, and it's not like God didn't know that this was happening. I want to be really clear. Satan is not some equal uh, uh, opposite power to God. That, that is not at all true, okay? Um, that's the way that sometimes pop culture will paint God and Satan, is that these are like equal and opposing forces. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, God will one day speak a word, and Satan will be done. These, these, are, not, uh, these are not equal and opposing powers, And so we have to come to grips with the fact that God allowed this to happen, knew that this would happen from the very beginning and had a very, very good purpose in it. So he he sees that the serpent comes into the garden and in his sovereign will allows it, allows man to have a choice to choose whether he will obey the voice of God or whether he will obey the voice of God. Satan. Um, You'll notice that uh, when God comes into the garden after the fall, he he addresses Adam, who, uh, this is according to God's good design, who is the leader of his marriage and his home. When Satan comes into the garden, he bypasses Adam's, he he bypasses Adam, he, he ignores God's good design embedded in creation, and he goes straight for Eve. Um, it is really clear in, in verse 6, um, at the end of verse 6, it says, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So Adam is, is not at all innocent in this, uh, very far from it. Adam is standing right there letting this all go down. Um, I, I believe that at any point, if Adam had simply done his job and stepped forward and, and said, excuse me, Mr. Snake, I don't like the direction that this conversation's headed, <laughs> things would look a little different. But he didn't. And to this very day, men are tempted toward the sin of passivity, while those God has entrusted to our care are in peril. So how did sin deceive Eve? Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So what's his first tactic? His first tactic is to get Eve to question God's word. Maybe it's not trustworthy. Maybe his commands ought to be reconsidered. After all, they are a bit antiquated. Maybe he's changed his mind since then. Maybe Adam misheard him. So Satan sows a seed of doubt. That's the first tactic, right? And Satan still deceives this way. Before we are tempted to believe an outright lie, he comes in and he sows seeds of doubt. Um, And right now, it's sort of in vogue to celebrate your doubts. But let me just tell you, the Bible tells us that doubt is dangerous. Now, um, I would say we are certainly to be um, 
honest about our doubts, and we're, we're to bring our doubts to God and that He can handle those. And we're to talk about the things that we're struggling with in community, but we're not to celebrate unbelief ever. Um, it, it's, it, it's not a virtue to be unbelieving, but Satan wants to make that cool and popular. Um, and so he sows seeds of doubt, and it's like softening up, softening Eve up for the blow. Look what he does next in verses 4 and 5. But the servant said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So after he sows doubt, his second tactic is to suggest an alternative to God's word, an alternative path. Once her mind becomes weakened with doubts, he hurls a lie into the heart of the woman. He suggests that God is withholding something from them, something they need, something that would make them happier, a a wisdom that would make them like God, knowledge that God doesn't want them to have for some selfish reason. He suggests they could be like God, and all they have to do is eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is how the enemy works. He waits until our doubts have made us vulnerable, and then he attacks with outright lies. And again, his goal is always to lead us into soul-destroying sin. Do you see the foolishness of sin? It's easier being an outsider looking in on somebody else's sin, isn't it? it it's, but it's good for us to do this. We, we need to, in our sober moments, like Sunday morning when you're sitting in church, to to remember, to remind yourself so that when the, the fog of temptation creeps over your mind and you are tempted to doubt that sin is really serious or that it's really dangerous, you can remember, no, 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 no. In my clearest moments, I, I, I know this. I know how serious it is. When Edmund eats Turkish delight, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He falls under the white witch's uh, enchantment, right? And each bite, he thinks he is going to satisfy his craving, but with each bite of the Turkish delight, he, he, he only intensifies his desire for more until he's willing to betray his siblings. It's, a, it's a, an incredible picture of the reality of how sin works, isn't it? We've all been there. We all know that you can't, you can't satisfy that desire. If you give in to the fleshly desire for sin, it only intensifies the desire for more. So this morning, if you're under the powerful sway of sin, I want to encourage you to plead with God for your eyes to be open to how dangerous sin is. If you don't feel it, if you don't hate it, ask him to show you how deadly serious it is so that you can fight for holiness without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12 says. All right, what what were the effects of this sin? The first thing that we see in verse 7 of chapter 3 
And it says, Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they, were, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So the first thing that we see is, is shame. This is really getting at the loss of their innocence. So up until this point, they had not experienced a single evil thought, not a single selfish motive. And all of a sudden, as soon as sin enters into their hearts, they are filled with thoughts they'd never had before, selfishness and wicked thoughts. Sin leads to a swirling tempest of shame-filled, self-focused thoughts. We've all been there. Then the next thing we see in verse 8, they hid themselves when they hear God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Sin leads us to hide from God, right? I mean, those of us who, who know the gospel, we know the power of the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us. When we fall into sin, we have experienced the way that it causes us to recoil in shame and want to hide from God. Anybody else ever felt like, I can't even pray right now? That's, that's, that's a lie. That's the effects of sin. And then we see verses 12 and 13, blame shifting. Look, look, at, look at what Adam says. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. One chapter before, he's singing. You know, he's like, I can't believe I got this gift. Oh my goodness. And now he's like, you gave her to me. This is your fault. I went to sleep and I woke up and she was here. Right? And so then he, he, he addresses the woman. What have you done? Well, the serpent, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is, this is another effect of sin, right? Blame shifting. We, we want to push the blame onto someone else, something else, anything but us. This is what we do in this deceived state when sin has come in. And so when we sin, what's the right response? Well, instead of hiding from God, we need to run to God. Instead of blame shifting, we need to own the responsibility for our sin. That's the only way to repent. There is no repentance without ownership. And so as long as you're blame shifting, you will be stuck in your sin. 100%. There is no shot of you getting freedom until you own your sin. Take responsibility for it. Confess it. Get it into the light. Let God cleanse you. And then you can be free. So they're covered with shame. They, They hide from God. They blame shift. And now God pronounces the curse in verses 14 through 19. First, the serpent, the snake, which um, the snake's not Satan. He's demonized by Satan, and, but still has to experience judgment for the part that it played in all of this. So the serpent's going to be the most cursed of all animals, uh, which obviously means that all of the animals experience the curse, the effects of the curse. Um, Eve is going to experience pain in childbearing. Um, her, it, he says, your desire is going to be for your husband or, or contrary to your husband. He's going to rule over her. 
but she's not going to naturally follow his leadership. And then Adam, he, he tells Adam, the, curse, uh, the ground's going to be cursed uh, because of your sin, and work's going to be difficult all the days of your life. And, and I think that what, what that's getting at is that all of life is going to be hard. Life isn't just going to be a breeze because of your sin. Work is going to be difficult. Employees are going to be difficult. The weather isn't going to line up with your plans. Like, you're going to get sick when you don't need to get sick. All, all of life is going to be difficult because of your sin. And he says that he's going to return to the dust that he came from. You will die, Adam, because of what you did. So then what does God do? Verse uh, 21, we, we hear that he makes garments of skins and he clothes, clothes them. Um, Hebrews 9, 22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. It, this appears to be a prophetic act that God is doing. He, he ordains that the first bloodshed occurs right here. After Adam and Eve sins, sin in, in order to make garments that will cover them. It's pointing forward to the cross. So then Adam and Eve are driven away from the garden. And remember we talked about last week that, that the garden is the place where heaven and earth overlap. And this is where we were made for. But in our sin, in our fallen state, we cannot live there. And so he drives them out of the garden and away from his presence. Psalm 5, 4 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. I want, I want us to understand something crucial for understanding the Bible and understanding the gospel. And that is that Adam's disobedience is our disobedience. It's so important we get this doctrine. The Bible says that when Adam was tested in the garden, he was representing the entire human race. Every person who would ever be born, every person born after him in the eyes of God was still in him, you see. And so when Adam sinned, we, along with the entire human race, incurred guilt. Romans 5.12 puts it this way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death spread to all of us because of Adam's sin. Just as those uh, angels who listened to Satan's voice and chose to join him in his rebellion. When Adam and Eve listened to the voice of Satan and, and choose to go the way that he suggests, they did the same thing. So Satan had begun what the Bible refers to as the domain of darkness, or Jesus refers to as Satan's kingdom when he's talking about a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. That began with Satan's rebellion with the angels, right? This dark rebellion. When Adam and Eve listened to the leader of that rebellion and followed him, they chose sides. 
Adam, in, in a sense, voted for sin. He voted for that rebellion. And he did so as our representative. Um, Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, gives a really helpful explanation. He says, All members of the human race were represented by Adam in the time of testing in the Garden of Eden. As our representative, Adam sinned, and God counted us guilty as well as Adam. God counted Adam's guilt as belonging to us, and since God is the ultimate judge of all things in the universe, and since his thoughts are always true, Adam's guilt does in fact belong to us. God rightly imputed Adam's guilt to us. I thought that was so helpful. It doesn't matter if we think it was fair. It was fair. (laughs) It was right. What God says is right. Um, And so when Adam sinned, we became guilty. And that was the right thing. So we are sinners because of Adam's sin. Um, His sin was credited to us, which is known as imputation. It was imputed to us. So because his sin is imputed or ascribed or credited to us, we are sinners even before we commit sin. The Bible says we are born in sin, which means we're born with a sinful nature. We are totally corrupted, which is the doctrine of total depravity. So we are sinners by nature, but we are also sinners by practice, right? Notice that in Romans 5.12, let's look at that one again. It said, and death, death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We, we, we are sinners because of Adam, and we're sinners by nature, through and through, but we're also sinners by choice and by practice, right? The point is that this world is not just broken because of Adam. It is broken because of us. We are not only victims of a sin-soaked world, we have contributed to the brokenness of our world. A Times newspaper editorial once asked, what is wrong with the world today? And G.K. Chesterton wrote in reply, Dear sirs, I am. Yours faithfully, G.K. Chesterton. We are part of the problem, right? So what are the effects of our guilt that we have incurred through Adam's sin, through our own sin? What, what are the effects of that guilt before God? Colossians 1.13 says that, that before we are redeemed, we belong to the domain of darkness. Before Christ, we are enemies of God, Romans 5.10. Haters of God, Romans 1.31. Children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. Children of the devil, 1 John 3, 10. Captured by the devil to do his will, 2 Timothy 2, 26. And I could have gone on and on and on and on. It's bleak. Um, There's a whole lot in the Bible that talks about this. What it means that we are in sin. But there's really good news. 
There's really, really good news. And that good news is embedded right here in chapter 3. God doesn't even wait to start talking about what he's going to do. Look at verse 15, chapter 3. God says, as he's cursing the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right here, in the middle of this darkest day, God speaks hope. He sets up this expectation that somebody born of a woman is going to crush or bruise the serpent's head. And so every time someone's born in the Old Testament, they're asking, we should be asking, if we're reading the story for the first time, could this person be the one? Could this be the one who's going to crush the serpent? Noah is born, and you're thinking, well, he could be the one. He walks with God. He's the only righteous person on the earth. But then after the flood, his life seems to just fall apart. He has a problem with alcohol, and he as seems to have an anger problem, then Abraham comes along. And you wonder, could he be the one? God's chosen him. And he's got such great faith. But then you see him doing stupid stuff. And he's taking matters into his own hands. And he's trying to have kids with uh, his servant and um, lying about his wife in order to protect himself. And you're like, well, there's no way this is the guy. And then Moses comes along, and you're like, wow, he's the chosen kid. He was protected. You know, he survives this thing, and God's going to use him to redeem uh, his people. And then he murders a guy, and he's got a serious anger problem that goes with him the rest of his life, such that he can't even get into the promised land. And then Joshua comes along, and you think, well, his, his, his name means God saves, and he's, he's this incredible leader, and he, he leads God's people into the promised land and conquers uh, the, the evil peoples of the land, but then he dies, and Israel's left without a reliable leader. So maybe it's one of the judges. Could it be Samson? I mean, he's got this superhuman strength set apart from his birth, and then you realize, man, he's got a serious problem with women, and um, <laughs> he's definitely not the guy. And then maybe it's one of the prophets like Elijah. But then we see Elijah right after his big mountaintop experience running from Jezebel in fear. And he's depressed and, and he's despairing of his life. And God, just kill me, right? And you're like, no, that definitely can't be the guy. <laughs> and then David, it, it, along comes this anointed young man, David, and he's a giant slayer, right? And, and it's like, wow, he's a man after God's own heart, and he's got so much integrity that for years he's being chased by Saul, and he, and he, never, he, he never fights back, and wow, and then all of a sudden, bam, he commits adultery, and he kills the guy who was married to the woman in order to cover up for his sin, and you're like, well, definitely not the guy. And yet David repents and returns to God, and God promises that one of his descendants will sit on the throne as king forever. So we have this clue 
The serpent crusher will be a descendant of King David. Oh, and this other clue, back in Ab- with Abraham, when God calls Abraham, he tells him one of, that, that through your descendants, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. Oh, okay. One of his descendants. So it's going to be one of Abraham's descendants. And then along comes a descendant of Abraham, David, and David's descendant. One of David's descendants is going to sit on the throne forever. So we have these big clues. And then along comes Jesus. And he's a descendant of Abraham. He's in the direct lineage of King David. The question is, will he fall like so many others before him? At the outset of Jesus' ministry, we see him tested in the wilderness for 40 days by that ancient serpent, the devil. And every time the devil tempts him to shortcut the Father's will or to go against the Father's word, he wields the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and he cuts down the lies of the serpent. Then we see him in his greatest hour of testing, and this time he's in a garden of all places. And again, he fully obeys the will of the Father. Where Adam sat back in sinful passivity while his bride was taken by Satan, Jesus stepped forward and took responsibility for our sins by willingly giving his life in our place on the cross. Jesus is the true and better Adam. Jesus is the seed of the woman who crushed the serpent's head, defeating sin and death through death on the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, passed the test in the garden and paid the full price for Adam's sin and all of those who have sinned in Adam since. Having been raised from the dead in glory, he is the firstborn of a new humanity. In the end, he's going to return to judge the world in righteousness and every secret thing will be exposed. Every motive of every heart will be brought into the light. And then Jesus will unmake this sin-soaked world that's bound to corruption and remake a new heavens and a new earth free from all sin and suffering and death. And those who were part of the new humanity will reign with Christ in the new creation forever. So the question is, who is a part of the new humanity? How do you get to be a part of his new creation? The Bible says that we are delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son through faith in Jesus. In the same way that Adam represented all of humanity and his disobedience was imputed to you, if you put your trust in Jesus' death on the cross as payment for your sins and his resurrection from the dead as victory over death, then Jesus' obedience will be imputed to you. That was what this was all leading up to. I hope you heard it. In the same way that when Adam sinned and broke it all, he was representing you, and you got credited with that disobedience. In the same way, if you put your trust in Jesus, then When he completely obeyed the Father and went to the cross and died on the cross for sin and was buried and was raised from the dead, all of that gets imputed 
to you. All of it. Such that the Bible would say that we have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There has been a, this is what it means to be a Christian. There has been a complete transfer of identity. A total transfer of your identity, of how God sees you, and hopefully of how you see yourself. And that's really what sanctification is. It's learning how to live in accord with who you are now. That's what sanctification is. It's letting Jesus, who now is in you and is your identity, live his life through you. Romans 5.19 puts it this way. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus refers to this imputed righteousness, this justification before God because of what he did. He refers to that as a new birth. And a new birth means a new lineage. So Christian, you are no longer a descendant of Adam. Through faith in Jesus, you have been counted righteousness, righteous and you have become a child of God, a descendant of Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. I hope you believe it this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for what you did. Lord, we were without hope until you came. Lost. We were your enemies. We did nothing to deserve what you did for us, Lord Jesus. Thank you for coming, for living a perfect, sinless life obeying the Father completely for paying the price for our sin, for starting a new humanity and including us in it. Lord Jesus, help us to live in, in line with who we are now. I pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.